Welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In each episode of this podcast, I look at a small slice of American writing using the Library of America collection as my source material. And today we're going to be looking at a really fascinating work by W.E.B. Du Bois called Dusk of Dawn. Now, I, I know most people who approach W.E.B. Du Bois probably know him through his essays for the crisis. They may have came across him in a kind of a history class at the university or even the high school level and read some of his articles. Or if they read one work by him, it was probably The Souls of Black Folk. And I, I that was published in the early 20th century. And then other important works by Du Bois, I don't think are as widely read. Um, and this is probably one of those. He's He wrote quite a lot and in a lot of different fields. Um, now, I do think Souls of Black Folk is probably his best work, but Dusk of Dawn is a really fascinating collection of essays, and there's a lot of genre mashing going on in this work, which really makes it relevant. I think it's very contemporary in the sense that it really foreshadows a lot of African-American politics of the later half of the 20th century, especially surrounding issues of empire, apartheid in South Africa, kind of the global, the greater consciousness about the global diaspora. And, you know, you can even take some of these themes that are explored in this work up to, you know, like the movie Black Panther, which just came out as I was recording this. So there's basically, in a sense, this is a work where Du Bois really steps out as, as an Afrocentrist, as someone who's able to combine his Marxist sympathies with his kind of African-American political agenda and his efforts to really improve the status and and rights of black people in America. But he, he's coming much more openly into his global perspective, which I think is something that always has to be considered when we look at Du Bois, is that he's both a radical on the political left, but an internationalist and an internationalist who sees the black experience in a global context and actually sees it as part of a global proletariat class. He does a bit of this in Dark Water, which was a collection of essays he wrote, I think, around 1920 after World War I. And it was that's kind of like a sequel to The Souls of Black Folk. We're not going to look at that whole work in this series. We'll look at some of the essays which are included in this Library of America collection of Du Bois's writing. And it comes out a lot, a bit ironically, because, well, in the book called Black Reconstruction in America, you, you think you're not going to get a global story in Black Reconstruction in America because it really is a focused study of of the experience of African-Americans and the nation in the period after the Civil War. But still, he's able to fit it into global markets and the experience of a global proletariat, of which he sees African-Americans uh, as a significant um, part and the part that he was most concerned about in his, in his political life. So Dusk of Dawn ends up doing a lot of things. Now, the book itself was published in 1940. And it's, it's a sense of the third collection of essays, and Du Bois even presents it this way. He says, I wrote Souls of Black Folk really at the kind of the birth, the time where Jim Crow is being established. Then he wrote 
really dark water in the context of the the Wilsonian moment. I don't think he uses this term because that's a more contemporary term by historians. But the Wilsonian moment being the period in which there was this optimism about the end of the empire due to uh, President Woodrow Wilson's claim that the war in Europe would result in a peace based on the principles of national self-determination. And of course, in practice, this in the actual result, it meant self-determination for some European nations, not even all the European nations, but some European nations, Poland, Serbia, really as a Yugoslavia is a greater Serbia at the time, and, and a few others. But, while, but for the, the many nations of the world still living under empire, there was no national self-determination, of course. So he's talking a little bit about that as uh, in this book, but it's much more in hindsight. Where he's writing, when he's writing this book is at the cusp, cusp of a second world war. It was published in 1940. And so he's got that in mind. And he's also really seeing the end of his career. Uh, by the time he wrote this, he was already in his late 70s. Now he would live to be 90 years old. So he would live quite a while after this, but he had no way of really knowing that. So he's kind of writing this in some ways as a reflection on his whole life and a reflection on his politics and a reflection of the story of his life alongside the story of black America. And then more and more increasingly in the second half of the work, the story of black people in America in the global context, in the context of a, black, of a global diaspora and a global struggle against empire. And so that makes this a really rich and fascinating book that I, I think needs to be taken seriously and looked at. Um, and I think, well, just in the context of, of the growing con interest in the black diaspora and scholarship and even in popular culture and the idea of the possibility of a broader politics for black people across the world, I think that makes this work rather fascinating. So in short, this work is an autobiography of by of Du Bois about himself. So we get a lot of his personal history, but we get uh, some reflection on the civil rights movement as it was constituted in the early part of the 20th century. And then we get some reflection on world history in the 20th century. And it's and at a time in which democracy was being tested, at a time when democracy was, if anything, on the de decline by 1940, right? You had the rise of fascism in Europe, Hitler's victories, and it wasn't just Hitler. You had, of course, the Soviet Union, an undemocratic force. You had empire expanding across the world in the aftermath of World War I with the codification of British rule in India, the expansion of British and French rule in Africa through the takeover of German former German colonies, uh, the continuing imperialist uh, drive into China, the rise of Japanese empire. And then, of course, you had many nations in Europe turning to the right and turning to right-wing totalitarianism, not just Germany, of course, it was Italy, but also Romania and uh, Austria and, and other countries turning towards uh, anti-Semitism and right-wing totalitarianism in there. So it was a time when democracy was on its back and the future of democracy was not at all certain. We, we tend to look back at this period and, and take for granted the victory of, of democracy. But this, I think, is the wrong way to look at this period of history. I think, if anything, what you get when you look at the 30s is many responses to an economic crisis, but most of these responses drifted towards totalitarianism and various authoritarianisms. And that's across the world. It's a global story, really. And Du Bois is reflecting on that as well. And I, I think all of this makes it such a rich and, and important work. Now, this is how Du Bois says it in the very first um, page of this book. 
Quote, my life had its significance and only its only deep significance because it was part of a problem. But that problem was, as I continue to think, the central problem of the greatest of the world's democracies, and so the problem of the future world. The problem of the future world is the charting, by means of intelligent reason, a path not simply towards the resistances of physical force, but through the vaster and far more intricate jungle of ideas conditioned on unconscious and subconscious reflections on living things, on blind unreason and often irresistible urges of sensitive matter, of which the concept of race is today one of the most unyielding and threatening. I seem to see a way of elucidating the inner meaning and significance of that race problem by explaining it in terms of the one human life that I know best. End quote. Okay, so the book itself is, well, first the title, Dusk of Dawn. It's, it's, a, it's kind of an optimistic title, and, and he, he does have that optimism, so there's enough in there to, for him to put this in the title that there is a dawn coming and it's dark now, but that doesn't mean dawn doesn't yet come. Um, but so that's, that's the title. Um, now the book is broken up into nine chapters. They're not really equally equal in length. Some are actually quite lengthy. So unlike souls, of, it's about as long as souls of black folk, maybe a little bit longer overall, but that had 14 chapters. This one only has nine and some of them, like one is just a, basically a, a brief introduction so we really have eight chapters. A couple of them really deal with his education uh, in the late 19th century. Uh, but by the time you get to the, the first through the first third of the book, you really realize you're looking at reflections on on a global the global experience of the black diaspora and the global proletariat in the context of empire and rising the rise of scientific racism, war, and and those those tensions. So I'm going to try to to talk through the first half of this book or so in this episode, and then I'll I'll pick up and really talk more about its its I guess it's the political side of things, and especially the the kind of the black Afrocentrism in the next episode. So in the introduction chapter chapter one, it's just called the plot, and essentially this is him laying out some of the themes of of the work, and so it's personal in the sense that he sees his entire life as one lived in essentially the prison of European civilization. And that is something that's been thrust upon black people through the experience of slavery and through white supremacy in the United States and, and globally. In fact, he starts out right away with a global picture. Quote, from 1680, from, sorry, from 1868 to 1940, stretched 72 mighty years, which are incidentally the years of my own life, but more especially years of cosmic significance. When one remembers that they rushed from the American Civil War to the reign of the second Roosevelt, from Victoria to the Sixth Georges, from the Franco-Prussian War to the Two World Wars, they contained the rise and fall of the Hohenzollerns, the shadowy emergence, magnificence, and the miracle of Russia, the turmoil of Asia and China, India and Japan, and the worldwide domination of white Europe. In the folds of this European civilization, I was born and shall die, imprisoned, conditions depressed, exalted, and inspired. Integrally a part of it, and yet much more significantly, one of its rejected parts one who expressed in life and action and made vocal to many a single whirlpool of social entanglement and inner psychological paradox, which always seemed to me more significant for the meaning of the world today than other similar or related problems. End quote. And again, Du Bois is the kind of writer that you start reading and you just want to keep, keep going. Maybe there's, I don't know if this is in public domain, maybe there's a LibriVox recording of this that needs to be 
done. I mean, Du Bois is just such a beautiful writer, even in his his nonfiction. I, I haven't read his not his fiction works except uh, the one in Souls of Black Folk was the Coming of John, which is really an allegory. Nevertheless, what else does he say here? So he he talks a little bit about his own how he sees himself as really a, a historian of of race, and then he connects this to something he thinks is very important to establish early on in the time when race was taken for granted as a category of analysis is that historicism is something or race is historicized. Race has a history and it changes and its conceptions change and it had an origin, right? It's, it comes out of slavery and comes out of empire. It's not something that's natural uh, to humanity. And so he's, this is, a, this is pretty much how most historians these days look at the concept of race. Only a minority, a very small minority, see race as something, you know, biological, right? Most historians see it as something historically grounded and changing. Um, he talks a little bit about the need of uplift, but he also talks about the limitations of uplift here because, you know, it's, it's a century not just of all these tensions and conflict that he just described, but it's also a century of a vast and impressive economic growth and technological expansion and uh, the growing power of humanity over nature through science. Yet this hasn't translated into better conditions for the global proletariat. Quote, not science alone could settle this matter, but force must come to its aid. The black world must fight for freedom. It must fight with the weapons of truth, with the sort of intrepid, uncompromising spirit, with organization and boycott, propaganda, and mob frenzy. End quote. So this is the limitation of science um, as the way out. And I think here is he still, you know, even though Booker T. Washington has been dead by this point for, for a couple decades, he still needs to lay down this this battle that it's not enough to just talk about vocational education. It's not enough just to talk about science will, will save us. There has to be a fight on principle. There has to be a struggle on, on the matter of truth. And it must be a political struggle. And it must be a struggle uh, waged not just in the realm of skills, which he certainly thinks are important, but also in the realm of, of the higher echelons of thought, particularly uh, the, like a direct challenge. If you're going to have a direct challenge to scientific racism, you're going to need black philosophers and black scientists and black professors challenging these points in at the fundamental level where knowledge is where knowledge is created and so but alongside this you need actual political power so he calls that as well and there's many many goals in this struggle uh, in terms of anti-empire individual security economic stability education uh, transforming scientific conceptions of race on and on so he really sets forth a broad agenda not just for this book but for the entire black freedom struggle in in chapter one of the plot and it's actually it's four just four pages but it's brilliant and they're really uh, a must read i think even if you don't read the whole book just to read that will i think give you a good idea of where du bois is is coming from in this this work well then what we get in chapter two is just straight up autobiography it's called a new england boy in reconstruction there is some national history here because he does connect his experience his early uh, life to the experience of reconstruction he was born in 1868 Um, the civil war is already over he was born in the north so he he eventually came to the south and experienced it but he wouldn't do that until much later in his life so he's experiencing reconstruction from afar and really as a, as a young as a young person. 
So he he does connect his he his life to the experience of Reconstruction, but he's kind of aloof from that. And one sense you get early on in this book is is a bit of aloofness from the broader experience of Black America from, from with from his own life. He doesn't he acknowledges that um, he was he you know growing up in Great Barrington. You know he was really in a lot of. Not a classless society, but in a in a in an area where there was the steep class dimensions you would have in the South, um, based on, I mean, of course, it's both racial caste and and social class were very much deeper in the South than where he's from. There weren't many black people in this town, so there wasn't a strong African American community for him to kind of get a political, develop a political point of view from. Um, you know, he grew up a, a, around white people and interacted with them much more. So he acknowledges that he, he was a bit separated from what most black people face, especially those living in the South. He was not rich, though, so he had to work and he, he got his literacy at, at a young age. So that wasn't a big struggle for him because he just was able to go to school. Um, but he he also had to work. So he talks a little bit of his early working experiences and he acknowledges that he was protected from from racism quote i presume i was saved evidences of a good deal of actual discrimination by my own keen sensitivities my companions did not have a chance to refuse me invitations they must seek me out and urge me to come as indeed they often did when my presence was not wanted they had only to refrain from asking but in the ordinary social affairs of the village the sunday school with its picnics and festivals the temporary skating rink in the town hall the coasting and crowds and all the hills and all these i took part with no thought of discrimination on the part of my fellows for that for I, for I would have been the first to notice. And he also talks about how the fact that he was in such a small town, there weren't the things like athletics and uh, dances and, and things that would have made him f- feel excluded, right? He, he supposes that had those things been a more common part of his youth, he would have felt discrimination, but he, it didn't really, he didn't really experience that. So it really wasn't until he went to college that he starts to, experience race in a more profound way and that's what he does so then where does he ends up going pursuing an academic life going to college Uh, he was actually encouraged by his by his high school principal to go on and seek college prep and and go on into into his into collegiate life so he graduates high school in 1884 he's part of a class of 13 um, and he gives the commencement address, and he talks about Wendell Phillips. He talks, so he talks about an abolitionist um, from from the North, a white abolitionist. His politics growing up were were largely Republican, and at the time, politics were still very regional in the United States, and still very much based on the experience of of the Civil War, what we used to call the the bloody shirt, the politics of the bloody shirt, right? So both both sides, both Democrats and Republicans tried to get votes more from the memory of the Civil War than actual any any concrete um, policy policy differences. You could always kind of throw out the war as a way to, to get votes on, on both sides. Well, he wanted to go to Harvard at this point, um, but he really didn't have the money. His mom was sick. And instead, he ends up going to to Fisk University. And so this is really the first time he goes to to the South. And so he, he does attend college in Fisk and then he graduates 
from Fisk in 1888. Um, so really the first chapter, A New England Boy, is really up to, about his life up to the point where he decides to go to, to Fisk University in the South. So he, he sets off in 1885, um, 1884. And, and so that's kind of where chapter two lets off. So it's very autobiographical. And yeah, there are broader issues talked about but the main theme here is his overall aloofness from from the black freedom struggle as it existed in the south chapter three is simply called education and this covers more or less the next decade of his life now what so this is this is kind of an interesting chapter structurally because it's about his education at fisk his experiences there and he was essentially a very hard-working student um, but as he goes to the South, he starts to learn more about the black experience more broadly. And he's he's kind of educated both in the school and in his consciousness. And then he spends some time later on in Germany. He fails to get a PhD there. He eventually gets a PhD in Harvard. But that doesn't happen until till 1896, I think. Let me look. 1895, he gets his PhD from Harvard. So, but that was after he, he failed to get his PhD in Germany. And also this is about him becoming a teacher. So he's not only being educated, he becomes an educator in this period. So the, the theme of this chapter is kind of a, the broader world he gets exposed to through education. And then his own experiences, learning how to be a teacher and, the, and his commitment to education as a liberatory um, conduit through his experiences as, as a teacher. Now, Fisk University, of course, is in in Nashville. It was it's what we can all call a historically black college, but um, in the days of Jim Crow, it would it was a college for for training and educating um, black people. And what he becomes very interested while he's studying there in black history and in the black experience, and he starts to actually want he seeks out efforts to go to the countryside to learn more about blacks living in the south Um, to quote him in this chapter quote my problem then was how into the inevitable and logical democracy which was spreading over the world could black folk in america and particularly in the south be openly and effectively admitted and the colored people of the world allowed their own self-government I therefore watched outside my textbooks and without reference to my teachers, the race developments throughout the world. The difficulty here, however, was securing any real and exhaustive knowledge of the facts. I could not get any clear pictures on the current change in Africa and Asia. Lynching was a continuing and recurrent horror during my college days. From 1885 and 1894, 1,700 Negroes were lynched in America. Each death was a scar upon my soul and led me on to conceive the plight of other minority groups. For in my college days, Italians were lynched in New Orleans, forcing the federal government to pay $25,000 in indemnity. And the anti-Chinese riots in the West culminated in the Chinese Exclusion Act. Some echoes of Jewish segregation and pogroms in Russia came through the magazines. I followed the Dreyfus case, and I began to see something of the struggle between East and West in the Sino-Japanese War. The three years at Fisk were years of growth and development. I learned new things about the world. My knowledge of the race problem became more definite. I saw discrimination in ways of which I did never dreamed. The separation of passengers on the railways to the south was just beginning. The race separation in living quarters throughout the cities and towns was manifest. The public disdain and even insult in race contact in the street conti- continually took my breath. And I came in contact for the first time with a sort of violence that I had never dreamed or I never realized in New England. Now, his time at Fisk is also a time of his growing 
I guess, um, write his, his development as a writer and an active public figure. He started public speaking. He edited the Fisk Herald. Um, so this gives him, you know, some foundation skills that he later use in his life as editor of the crisis and a public intellectual of note. In 1888, he graduates from Fisk University and his, his thesis was Bismarck. Now, why was he interested in Bismarck? He, he says he was interested in Bismarck because Bismarck was such an effective nationalist. He was able to take uh, a divided nation and make it whole. And he actually says here he thought that this the, the lessons of Otto von Bismarck could have been applied to to Black America. So then he goes on to he studies at Harvard and he studies for a time in in Germany. It's now Harvard's an interesting experience for him because there were Black undergraduates at Harvard, but he would be the first Black man to be awarded a PhD from Harvard. So he was kind of entering a, a territory where he would, you know, be more alone than he was at Fisk, or even had he just been an undergraduate at Harvard, as his original plan was to be. He starts to turn his back a little bit on philosophy and becomes much more interested in sociology, economics, and history, of course. But he's also coming to terms with a much more conservative and politically restrained academic culture in Harvard, which is something he wasn't used to in Fisk. And he talks a lot here about how conservative the curriculum was and how aloof it was from how aloof the, the lessons he was learning were from the broader black experience. He, like he goes on about how they would obsess over David Ricardo and how they presented the Berlin conference, which gave Belgium the Congo was, you know, a great achievement in the war against the slave trade when in fact it was enslaving, you know, tens of millions of, of Africans in in a colonial arrangement quote the congo free state was established and the berlin conference of 1885 was reported to be an act of civilization against the slave trade and liquor french english and germans pushed on in africa but i did not question the interruption which pictured this as the advents of civilization and the benevolent tutelage of barbarians i read of the confirmation of the triple alliance in 1891 later on i saw the celebration of the renewed triple alliance on the teppenhofer feld with the new young emperor wilhelm ii who fresh from his dismissal of bismarck led the Blended pageantry. And finally, the year I left Germany, Nicholas II became czar of all over Russia. So, anyways. Now, his path to a PhD in Harvard was he first got a bachelor's degree from, from Harvard and then and continued on and studied uh, his PhD in, in history. Um, but, again, we have a very, in Chapter 3, we have, again, a very autobiographical chapter, but it shows him becoming much more aware of, of the world outside of the one he grew up in and a broader experience, both in Europe and by, by through his experience in Europe and in Germany and a greater awareness of Africa and, and the, imperial, the imperialism of European powers in Africa and through his experience in Nashville, understanding a little bit more about uh, the African-American experience uh, from a Southern point of view. And this is all part of why he shifts his studies to sociology and history at this point in his life. And then by the time we get to chapter four, Science and Empire, which is still sort of autobiographical. It covers the period from 1894 to 1910. And by that point, Du Bois's life is entirely different. He's written Souls of Black Folk. Um, he's already become a public intellectual. He's 
the crisis is going to be established in 1910. So it basically takes us up through the establishment of the crisis. But the chapter is called Science and Empire. And part of it, of course, is his growing awareness of empire and his response to it. Um, but really here he's trying to tell a global story and he's trying to integrate his own life experiences into what's happening in the world, really with the rise of, of empire. So that's the theme of this chapter is, is the rise of European empires and what it really means for the black diaspora and the global proletariat overall. And it's really striking when we think about how recent like the global turn has been in history. You know, it's kind of striking just how upfront and how prophetic du, uh, du Bois was in his view of, of history. Quote, the Queen's Jubilee then, I knew, not, was not merely a sentimental outburst. It was a triumph of English economic aggression around the world and had roused the cupidity and fear of Germany who proceeded to double her navy, expand into Asia and consolidate her European position. Germany challenged France and England in Algiers, prelude to the World War. Imperialism, despite Cleveland's opposition, spread to America, and the Hawaiian sugar fields were annexed. The Spanish War brought Cuban sugar under control and annexed Puerto Rico and the Philippines. The Panama Canal brought the Pacific near the Atlantic, and we protected capital investments in San Domingo in South America. All of this might have been interpreted as history and politics. Mainly, I did so interpret it, but continually I was forced to consider the economic aspects of world movements as they were developing at the time. Chiefly, this was because of the group in which I was interested were workers, earners of wages, owners of small bits of land, servants. The labor strikes interested and puzzled me. They were, for the most part, strikes of workers led by organizations to which Negroes were not admitted. On and on. So, and, and he goes on in here and talks about his interest in, in economics in the context of empire. So it's a really great essay on just how one's own intellectual development responds to what you see, what you read in the newspaper every day. So, you know, that's, I think, part of the strength of this work is you see Du Bois emerging intellectually and politically in a, com in a global conversation. Now, he gets a job offer to teach at Wilberforce University, which was an African-American college. It was run by the African Methodist Church. It's in Ohio. He actually got, he accepted this job and like the next day or something, he got a letter welcoming him to take a job at Tuskegee. And he, you know, I think it was actually for more money, but he decided to stay with Wilberforce because he already agreed to that job. But he actually thinks how funny, how interesting it would have been had he, you know, gone to work for the person who would be an intellectual rival of his, uh, Booker T. Washington, who, of course, was, was running uh, the Tuskegee Institute at the time. So much of this chapter autobiographically is focused on Du Bois's growing conflict with Booker T. Washington and the rise of the Niagara movement in, in 1906, which really is a movement that defined itself. Of course, this is the forerunner to the NAACP and the crisis. Um, all those things Du Bois was central in, in creating. But the Niagara movement really focused on issues that Booker T. Washington specifically said should be should be set aside for the time being. You get a list of them here. One, freedom of speech and criticism. Unfettered. Two, unfettered and unsubsidized press. Three, manhood suffrage. Four, the abolition of all caste distinctions based simply on race and color. Five, the recognition of the principle of human brotherhood as a practical present creed. Six, the recognition of the highest and best human training as a monopoly of no race or class. Seven, a belief in the dignity of labor. And eight, united efforts to realize these ideals under wise and courageous leadership. 
And these were all things really that Booker T. Washington was seen as not doing by by people like Du Bois. And that's more or less where the first half of the book takes us. I'm not quite at the halfway point. I'm not even quite at 100 pages yet. But it, that kind of closes the, the, the chapters that are more autobiographical. And chapters 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, although they will have autobiographical moments, are going to be much more meditations on race and meditations on the black experience overall and meditations on, on revolution. Uh, the world wars and these kinds of things. So I'm going to kind of reserve all of that for for the next episode, and and just kind of divide it up this way. So my next episode will probably have to be a little bit longer, because I, I'm kind of deferring some of the material I should be covering in this episode to the next one. But I'm just doing that because the, the thematically the book breaks up at this point and and kind of explodes into a a brilliant meditation on, on the black experience. And it really, he comes off quite strongly as Afrocentrist in this section too. Um, but even beyond that, he, he talks about this, what I've been saying again and again this, in this podcast is talking about his, his own relationship to a global proletariat. So it, it becomes really a fascinating document uh, in the second half. So I, I'll, I'll leave it at that for now. So thank you so much for listening. If you have any of your own comments about Dusk of Dawn or Du Bois' life or experiences, please uh, write me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com and I'll, I'll try to respond to your, your comments. So again, thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next time with, with the second half, really the second two-thirds of, of Dusk of Dawn by W.B. Du Bois. I see the moonlight I'm walking through the moonlight Lay this body down